Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. It is Tuesday, November 8th. We are here live. It is time for the Power Hour. Uh, a couple of things. Yesterday, I had a problem with feedback uh, on the caller side. The, the open I did, everything was fine. The recording was fine. But the caller feedback was, it's really, it's just about impossible to have a conversation when the caller's hearing themselves. It's one of those lessons in troubleshooting, which we talk about all the time on this show. It is Time for the power hour, by the way. We're going to open the phone lines right now, so you're going to want to jump in 855-950-3835. So when I knew that we were getting the feedback, I, I had almost expected it. I made some changes to the board after I traveled, working on some new things um, for the studio. So, But I thought I had a really easy fix to it. I thought the problem was the headset I was trying to use and the, the monitors here in the studio. So I just switched to my broadcast headset thinking that'll fix it because I, I was even anticipating the problem and it didn't fix it. And then on the fly, while I'm on the air, I started tearing things off the board because the first way to troubleshoot things is eliminate all the possibilities you can easily eliminate. So... I got down to just a bare board with the headset and it's definitely not the headset. I have four of them. So I even tried a second broadcast headset to eliminate that issue. And at that point we just had to kind of end the show. Um, so I started working. I made a list of the possibilities. What are all the things in the system that could cause feedback on the caller line? And we started to eliminate them one by one. And I got all the way down to the point where I thought the only thing left is the board itself. Um, and I went through all the settings and didn't know I, it, everything was fine. So I actually ended up calling tech support for the board. I don't usually have to do that very often. And they tried to troubleshoot it and they couldn't figure it out. And then finally he said, I know this is really a pain, but I think if you just reset the board back to factory settings, it's going to fix this problem. It's, he says, sometimes we just get these glitches after you've been using things for a while and changing things. So I did. It immediately eliminated the problem. So it was the last thing we checked. I guess it always is um, because once you figure something out, then that's going to be the last thing you do check. But in this case, it was the last thing that could have been the problem. There was nothing else left anymore. So it fixed it. I think we're good today, but uh, I was playing around with some settings there at the very last minute. That's why we had kind of a wonky open. But I think we're on track now. Hopefully, um, caller audio will be fine. Uh, if it's not, I have a quick fix today. I will switch to a, uh, a more basic headset setup. So enough of that. couple things to announce. Happy Election Day. Get out and vote. You know, I was really, really thinking about doing a, an episode of The Pit today after the Power Hour, um, just on my own. 
And then I thought, oh, everybody is so tired of politics right now. And that's all you're going to see and hear anywhere today. So I have other things I could be working on. We have some really, really big projects in the works that we're getting close. Um, you're going to see some major changes to the website on December 8th. Nothing you have to worry about. Nothing that will make anything more difficult for you on the website. It's going to make it a lot easier to find a lot of our really good content. And a couple other big things we're going to be able to do uh, with this uh, update and uh, just going to keep you in the dark on that. Um, but we'll be closing out this year with a lot of changes in the way we bring information to you. Uh, I'm also working on possibly uh, setting up video here in the studio so that we can live stream the shows every day. Uh, we'll see how that goes. One other thing. Um, actually, you know what? I'm going to bring Bruce on for this announcement, and then we'll find out what's on Bruce's mind today. Bruce, welcome back. Uh, thank you, Kevin. As always, it's our pleasure. Are you, I just want to check since you're the first caller since I went live today, are you hearing yourself in an echo? No, I am not. Okay, I think I got it fixed then. All right, so my announcement today yeah. is one of your favorite things. All the bone broth is on sale till the end of the week, 20% off. At, uh, and collagen, oh, wow. Lisa's hollering in the background. Um, bone broth and collagen, all on sale, 20% off. I don't think we've ever discounted it that much. Wow. Did you get overstocked? Uh, no, I think we're just trying to be nice for the holidays. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So, I had another uh, gentleman call me, Deshaun Johnson, heavy hauler, came out of your state, across Colorado, with a hundred, let me find my note on him. 264 gears. He's doing heavy haul. He had 336. He listens to the show. He's got an MXS Acer Caterpillar, our JR, tuned it, and he brought 114,000 over the Rockies. He said it had absolutely no problems. He was coming out. Of, it was either Washington or Oregon coming back east. And uh, that's more news on 264s on a heavy haul. That's impressive, and he's not having any startability yeah. issues? No issues whatsoever. So that's, that's the number one question, why be able to start out. Yes. So. Yeah, and that's the thing we do get a little more concerned about because – the, the things most people are concerned about, like getting up a hill or, you know, performance accelerating, we know that that's just a fallacy and a myth. That, that's just not true at all. Um, in fact, you've pointed out we have many times that if anything, you're going to pull better when you're in your direct gear. So there's an improvement. And most people think that just that gear number is just going to kill their truck on the hills. We've been trying to defeat that myth forever, but we do get concerned about that startability. That is a true issue. Um, like most things, you can go by the charts. There's charts on all this. You can calculate all this. And 
you can also fudge those charts like we do on a lot of things, on torque ratings, on components. And you know, for a good driver, there's a lot of wiggle room in those charts. But, but it is a real concern, so we do pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. Right. So, got some mileage reports on another N14. Uh, Gene Barnett, he is our catalyst dealer from Dayton, PA, which is only about 50 minutes north of us. And he is pumping out 9.2 mile per gallon now. Wow. An N14. On an N14. That's impressive. Yes, it is. But he's after Reggie because Reggie from Wisconsin is a 10.03 out of his N14 in a Columbia. Columbia or a century Reggie's in. And Reggie's still running 355 gears, but he keeps his speed down at 60. So both these guys are driving by the boost gauge and really watching it. So there's two N14s, one's at 9.2 and one's at 10.03. That's just incredible. You know, the reason we didn't do a show last week, because I traveled all week to a conference, Um, not my typical audience. Um, In fact, I am probably not going to do these kind of events anymore. Um, It was put on by an insurance company and agency, uh, and it was primarily targeted towards big fleets. And, and the major topics, really interesting. I talked about them yesterday. Um, something I kind of knew was happening in the industry, but didn't really pay attention to it. The, the nuclear verdicts, um, fleets have gotten to the point now where even if their driver has no fault in the accident whatsoever, and the other driver is absolutely charged and at fault, they will not go to court with it. They settle them for really, really big amounts of money. Um, Warner had one recently that they their driver had no fault whatsoever. The, the other, one of the other adults in the vehicle, the car, was charged criminally. It was so outrageous, his behavior, and yet two children died in the accident. Warner settled for $150 million. And they paid it. Yeah, they just paid it. They won't go to court. Even though they had no fault and the driver of the car was charged criminally, not just a, a traffic violation, he was given a criminal charge because two of the children died. And, and Werner just settled $150 million. They call them nuclear verdicts now. Um, we had a really big one, made it to a billion. That, that's just insane um, that anybody gets awarded that kind of money. It's just stupid. It's just going to tear our economy apart. So that, that's what the conference was about. And then they talked about the staged accidents. I didn't follow that topic either up until now. That's a fascinating topic. That's all done by organized crime. Um, That's what's going on with the staged accidents. And again, without camera systems to be able to prove this stuff, most of these staged accidents, the, the most common is a car will come flying by the truck on the left side and immediately jump over into the right lane and hit the brakes. And you're going to run into them. 
and a rear end accident without any kind of proof, the trucking company is always going to get charged and they just settle. But now companies are, are starting to use camera systems and they're fighting back a little bit, at least on the staged accidents. One other thing I forgot to mention yesterday I talked about the whole legal system and how they train for this, and it's, it's really kind of disgusting when you think about it. But um, another thing that's going on, you know, I, I'm a capitalist. I love a free market without a lot of government regulation, but people and companies are going to have to start practicing what's being called conscious capitalism, where just the bottom line can't be the only reason we run a company. And, and there's just too much of that going on. It's just nothing, but we will do anything to make money. And I don't want the government to step in and create a bunch of rules and regulations. So I'd like to see business owners get a little more responsible. Here, here's a business model that I can't even believe this exists. Um, People have heard of hedge funds and what hedge funds are, they're really not for the small investors at all. Hedge funds are designed for big institutional investors like retirement accounts and pension plans and insurance companies. They put a ton of money into these hedge funds and they're managed by some of the most brilliant financial minds in the world. And there are billions of dollars in these funds. And that's fine. I don't have a problem with hedge funds, but I do have a problem with this one. Here's how this works. And they, they managed to open this up to individual investors because they managed to get around all of the investment regulations, which are really heavy. But they did it because the only way you're allowed to invest in this fund is through Bitcoin. And because it's Bitcoin, somehow there's, there's like no rules. It's like the Wild West. So anybody can contribute to this fund. If you wanted to contribute $50, I think you can. Or you could contribute a million or whatever you want. But here's what the fund does with the money. So hedge funds can be all different. Some will invest into individual stocks. Some might invest into real estate trusts. There's all kinds of investments they could use. This one, though, is completely unique. Almost no rules. You have to do it in Bitcoin. And you get the Bitcoin through them, by the way. And then they take all of that money and they are using it to create these giant lawsuits. This money is going to pay the law firms that bring these lawsuits against um, companies. Isn't that awful? Wow. It's terrible. And, and what about the people investing? How, how do you sleep at night knowing that the whole point of this fund is just to go after companies and try to create these giant nuclear verdicts? Yeah. So I didn't mean to bring everybody down, but I forgot that point yesterday. So um, what else do you have today? Remember, Ben, the fellow was working on the 2007 Mac up in Alberta, Canada, and I sent you the pictures of that uh, screwed up exhaust system. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All the 90 degree bends. Well, he got it all straightened out, put one of our shorty straight through muffers on, made it a weed burner. And they put the can, not the can, in our clean air filter in it. 
and he went from an unresponsive truck to a very responsive truck. No fuel. No fuel was added. Nothing changed on the fuel. Uh, just exhaust system and air filter. He went from 25 pound of boost to 35. Wow. Just in from exhaust? Increase. And the air filter. Exhaust and the fleet air. Yeah. So to see how much was the fleet air filter, put the fleet air filter back out, put the paper in and worked it a day. The fleet air filter was three to four pounds of that. Wow. Pretty amazing, huh? Well, something. Mac with an air filter under the hood, the fleet air filter was three to four pounds. That's 100 degrees cooler right there. And by straightening out, straightening out the exhaust system, lost another 150 degrees. That's incredible. And, and we've talked about that concept so many times. Um, a diesel engine is just, it's like a giant air pump. We need to get as much air into it as we can easily and as much air out of it as we can easily. And sometimes we forget that something so simple has a really big impact. That's correct. Good stuff. Anything uh, somebody else? Somebody told me, called me said, yeah, somebody said, I need to talk about torsional dampers again because people have forgotten that the torsional damper, most people call them harmonic balancers, but the correct term is torsional damper on the front of the crank is only good for half a million miles and they need changed. And then uh, uh, I heard that one mechanic said uh, he was told the customer, no, on the ISX, you don't have to change those. They, they're, they're different. And then I've heard the same thing Caterpillar mechanics saying, you don't have to change them. They're different. No, they're all made by the same people, and the insides of them are all identical. doesn't matter the engine. They're all identical on the inside. You know, Bruce, you can understand well, why, if somebody wasn't trained in this, why they would never think. I mean, until I met you and you explained this to me, I had looked at a lot of crankshaft dampers on the front of the engine and barely knew what it was. And I would have never thought that that part needs replaced. I mean, if you don't know that, you would never figure it out on your own. You would never look at that and go, oh, I, I know what's going on in there. And after you just wouldn't do it. So it, it's unfortunate that how long have you been talking about this? I mean, you you told me about it within the first, I'm sure, week of you and I talking. I mean, it was very early. And as soon as you explained it to me, it made total sense. But when was the first time you started talking about this? In the mid-1980s, around 1985, 86. So you were talking about it the year I bought my first truck. And the first time we brought you on the air was in 2007. So all those years, I knew nothing about this topic. And the, as soon as you explained it to me, it made so much sense. And then when we started working with people to change it, we saw the results. And people were just amazed at what a difference it can make in their truck when you replace that thing when you're supposed to. That's right. And you know what else? Was, uh, you and I did a live show, I think it was from the Dallas Truck Show. Do you remember that show? And I, 
I brought a boost gauge and a pyrometer up, and I explained to you how we diagnose and yep. figure out whether it's a fuel or air problem. And your chin dropped, and you stared at me. Well, said, I had no idea those two gauges would tell you that. And and I understood how a diesel engine worked. I understood how both of those things were important, but for some reason it never clicked that with just watching those two gauges, you could probably eliminate 50% of what might be going wrong. You could pretty quickly identify, do I need to be looking for a fuel side problem or an air side problem? And if it is, right. it narrows it down to the troubleshooting steps. So you're right. Again, there was a, there was a, a, I understood what was happening there, but for some reason it just never clicked to me that those two gauges were such a big part of troubleshooting. So let's just say it real quick. If you you know your boost, and if your boost is always, say, 32 pounds pulling a hill with wide open throttle, and your pyrometer, if it's on the hot side, it should be at 1,200 on the cold side between 900 and 1,000, cold side being the thermocouples in the pipe. So if you start to lose boost and you gain exhaust gas temperature, that means you're losing compressed air you've got a problem either with the turbo the air filter the charge air cooler one of the hoses one of the clamps one of the gaskets or the air compressor now if you're losing boost and you're losing exhaust temperature now you've got a fuel issue because it takes fuel to make boost but it takes boost to keep the exhaust cool. So when both gauges are coming down, so let's say you normally make 32 pounds and a thousand degrees. Now you can only make 800 degrees and, and 22 pound of boost. You've got a fuel restriction issue or a fuel problem or an ECM problem or an injector problem. You know, another area where we've, been having a lot of success helping people using boost like you just mentioned boost actually lowers exhaust temperature the higher the boost goes the lower our exhaust temperature should go if everything's working right and we're also right. finding now that that's an issue with emissions that we don't want a lot of the emissions engines running cooler we actually do want them to run hotter so we might be instead of dropping a gear, sometimes we might be waiting longer to drop a gear and, and or whatever we need to do at the moment to get that exhaust temperature up. And usually it means the boost will come down. Um, but when we get that all right, um, it's not just a fuel mileage indicator anymore or a troubleshooting problem. It's also a way to help us keep that, that engine temperature up so that we don't have as many of the emission problems. When these engines are starting to run just a little bit cooler, we're starting to see more emission problems with them. So again, specking, you know, if we, if we spec the truck right, if we're driving it right, and we can still use those gauges even on the modern engines to help with emissions now. Right, now let's clarify something here. Let's go to a non-emission engine. If you have way too much boost, for the temperature that you have, the exhaust temperature, now you're going to lose power, you're going to lose the cruisability, and you're going to lose fuel mileage because 
your turbocharger is actually too small and it's screaming there under the hood. Right. Which means the turbine housing is too small. But uh, on the emission engines, if you run the catalyst, then you don't have to worry really about keeping your exhaust temperature up because the catalyst burns it hotter and faster. It burns 33% faster, burning the soot and carbon. So that's it, like the trucks that are in the oil patch and school buses and garbage trucks. They really benefit from the max mileage catalyst because they don't get up to operating temperature. It, you're right. That's a, that's a good point on those trucks. Much harder to keep them in that, that ideal temperature range. Mm-hmm. Some school buses, fleets, and I hear some garbage trucks are going back to gasoline engines, and that's a mistake. That's a huge mistake. They just need to get a hold of us and get the max mileage in those trucks, and they won't have any issues. Wow, I didn't realize they were doing that. You know, I wonder... I wonder if the other factor has been... And I don't remember when this really started to occur. It seemed to me like when I first got into the industry, and I I wasn't paying as much attention to these numbers all the time like I do now, but it seems to me like there never used to be a big differential between gas and diesel prices. Wasn't there a time that diesel was almost always cheaper? Am I just remembering that wrong? Yes. That's what I thought. No, you're correct. And now... This time around is the worst, but this has been happening quite a bit. You know, gas went way up. Everybody freaked out. Um, Gas did drop, and it's really, I mean, it's nowhere near what it should be, and it's nowhere near what it was um, before this administration killed our our energy industry. But it's significantly cheaper than diesel. Diesel is still in the five, I think today was 536 a gallon. And I just wonder if, we're seeing fleets that think they're going to save money uh, by switching over to gas. And and I don't know. I don't do enough research into those kind of markets to know. But that's a big difference in, in the fuel price that they use every day. Now, we all know that that gas engine, the maintenance cost is going to go up significantly over diesel. Oh, the, the, how slow they'll be back to everything will be in your way now. Oh, yeah. Done. Yeah, it'll be awful. Buses in western Pennsylvania, you know, we were going up hills at 20 miles an hour. Yeah, right. Yeah, it'll be awful, but I, I wonder if part of the push is that that diesel price has stayed so elevated and is always more than gas now. Yeah, I think their complaint was emissions. Huh. Well, Pete they're, can they're, elaborate more on that because he worked for one of the school bus fleets and talking gasoline now. So I'll let Pete talk about that. Yeah. Um, and it, if that's if that's the case, if they're now thinking about going back to gas because emissions, their timing is horrible. If they would have done that 10 years ago, it might have made sense to do it. Now we're finally figuring out all the emissions. These, the, the diesel engines yeah. going forward will be like our, our gasoline engines have been for a long time now. Really pretty mm-hmm. trouble-free. I mean, it, it, I, we've talked about it before. Mm-hmm. I'm amazed at you could own a car for four years, never open the hood, and not have many problems if you didn't want to. Right. You know something else I've noticed since we got onto the Catalyst four years ago? used to get a lot of phone calls every day. 
My truck has a skip. It misses at certain RPMs. Uh, I lost another injector. I'm not getting those phone calls anymore. Yeah, I don't get them on the air much anymore either. Last time I- yeah, we, we yeah. had the the coughing issues. People would describe it as if you tried to get back into the right. throttle too hard, you'd get that big cough yeah. and hesitation. And uh, it, and yeah. we still deal with a lot of people that have those older engines, the early emissions that had all those problems. We just don't hear much about them anymore. I got teased the last week, a customer in Wisconsin, and he runs the catalyst. He says, yeah, up here we say uh, if you get a flat tire, Bruce will say put catalyst in it. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm not saying boy. it fixes everything. Yeah. What I'm saying is today's fuels, sometimes it's not the engine, it's the fuel, whether it's gasoline or diesel. And I've been a victim on both. So. Yep. Yep. All right. Anything else? No, that's all I have. All right. We, uh, we are going to talk to Pete then. Pete, good morning. Hi, Kevin. How are you doing today? Doing great. Great to have you back. Feels like it's been like two weeks since we did this. It has seemed like a long time, for sure. Yeah. If you get in the habit of doing it weekly and you miss a week, it throws us off. Yeah, it does. I mean, it really feels like... Uh, it was longer than I thought. My my uh, my trip, like I said, was interesting. Um, the train ride was awesome during the days. The nights, not so much this time. I had been working on my sleep and making all those improvements. And between the train, for some reason, I wasn't able to sleep on it this time well. And then my schedule, once I got there, was a mess. Um, I wiped out all of my sleep. The good news is as soon as I got back home, it's right back to improving again and doing better. So um, it's good to be back doing an episode of the Power Hour. Uh, It seems like I was just, oh, I know what I wanted to talk about. I might as well talk about it with you. We all talk about this quite a bit. Um, You know, I've been... uh, kind of a proponent for the change to electric, not so much electric vehicles. I don't want to see the government push this. I don't want to see all these rules about car manufacturers have to make so many electric cars. I wish they would just drop all of that and let the free market work. And a lot of the problems that have been pointed out, um, whether it's, you know, range or charging stations or all that stuff. I said, look, look, that can all be fixed. I mean, we never used to have gas stations everywhere and, and truck stops all over the place. But I did learn some things at this conference that have changed my mind about how fast this is going to happen. I, I really, because all I was really looking at was the the technology of the vehicles themselves and they're improving rapidly so i thought you know they've kind of got this all we have to do is build out charging stations and then people said well but what about the grid and uh, you know i said well we can fix that the problem is i don't think we're going to and i they put out some statistics that were absolutely shocking um oh who uh, Schneider was proposing, they wanted to build a new terminal somewhere in New Jersey. And now I'm forgetting the city. Uh, Medium sized city. 
Um, not really tiny. Everybody would recognize the name of, for some reason, this is not coming to me right now. Um, so when they submitted all the plans for this terminal, they wanted to put in 50 superchargers. So our mega chargers, I think we're calling for the trucks. Tesla calls their cars superchargers. I think we're calling these mega chargers for the truck. Um, they wanted to put in 50 of them. And you think about the number of trucks that Schneider might run through a terminal like that. 50 isn't a lot. I mean, I don't think it would even handle, you know, if they had a lot of electric trucks, certainly not going to work just having 50. But here's what happened. The city turned down their plans. And it wasn't just that those 50 chargers were going to pull too much. What the city came back and said was, your 50 chargers pull more power than we currently use as a city. That's insane. A lot. If it's that, they actually also compared 50 mega chargers to the same amount of power that it takes to power the entire Empire State Building. So I'd imagine that would be all 50 running at once. Uh, you know, they didn't really clarify whether it was an average use over a 24-hour period. They were talking about a 24-hour period. So they didn't really say how many hours the chargers would be in use. But I think the point of it really is, no matter how you want to slice and dice that statistic, that's awful. We're not even close to being able to put a lot of electric vehicles on the road. No. I mean, has anyone looked into, so if we're at near zero emissions to trucks and, and there's a change coming up to drop it further, how much are we saving by going to electric trucks? How much cleaner are the electric plants well, versus running near zero emission trucks? Well, I know we've made improvements in, in filtration at the plants and, you know, there's clean coal or cleaner coal. But the last statistic I heard is like 70 to 80 percent of the power we're using to run electric vehicles is coming from coal. We can't be saving any emissions here in the big picture. And, you know, when you see a picture of cars running into California in the cities, and it's, it's six lanes, it is bumper to bumper for hours, if they would simply eliminate that with a train going in and out or buses and eliminate 40 or 50% of the vehicles, what would that save alone in fuel and emissions? I mean, that, that seems relatively simple. Yeah, well, you would think it was simple, except... Um the party that's controlled California for so long, they have the high speed project from San Francisco to LA, I think, or somewhere in that, in that range, they wanted to build that whole high speed rail thing. For some reason, we just can't seem to figure out high speed rail in this country. Europe does it well. Asia does it well. We can't seem to figure it out. Um, I'm going to, totally blow the numbers here probably because they're too big to even make sense to me. So I can't remember them. When they first started the project, I think it was like 10 trillion or something. Now they, they said if they ever finish it, it would probably run into the hundred millions instead. And it's already like 10 years behind schedule. I mean, every time we try to do some sort of light rail 
high-speed rail. It becomes a total disaster. And I, I just, you're right. We, we should be able to solve those traffic and, and emission issues around big cities by just better public transit. And we just can't seem to figure that out in this country. Yeah, I can see where trains, you got to build tracks, there's expense, but I mean a bus. So you build a bus. So what are they, 150 grand? It's a zero or near zero emission bus. And it holds 40 people. Well, you just took 40 cars off the road. Yeah, I know. You put 10 of them on the road, you made 400 cars. So, it, I mean, how it, it, it seems awfully simple to fix the problem. You know, a part of the bus thing is probably more of a logistics issue, especially in a city like L.A., it's so big and so spread out. And it, let's say I have an hour commute in my car. Well, honestly, if it were convenient, I would much rather have an hour commute in a train. Hell, with today's technology, that's like an hour I could work. So my two hours of commuting time becomes two hours of, of work time. And I don't have to be at work as long. I can now spend more time at home with my family. But with the bus thing, I, I think it becomes the routes get all convoluted and then, you know, there's too many stops and I think people, it takes too long. So you're right, the bus seems a whole lot cheaper, but the real answer seems to be that we can't figure out how to make either one of them work. And why would I want to take the bus? If I own a car, I hard to buy a car, you know, why, why should you force me to take the bus? Why can't I just take my well, car to work? Well, first off, I don't want to yeah, use the word force for anything. Right. Yeah, I don't want anybody to be forced to do anything. This should all be individual choice. It should be companies that decide to invest in this or not. Um, but I could, if it were a nice, clean bus without a lot of homeless people sleeping on it or something stupid like that. If it were convenient, I got on close to my house um, and got off close to work without a lot of stops and interruptions. I could look at the same thing, especially in a place like, you know, a city where you've got hour long commutes. Now that's two hours a day. If I can sit on a bus, I can work. Now, you know, if we truly get to autonomous technology in cars, where I could just sit back and the car could drive and, and I could work. That'd be another story. But we, uh, we kind of made a mess of our cities as far as transportation goes. You know, in and out, the commutes are awful. The pollution is awful. And I, I don't know that if, if we made such a big mess of it in the beginning because we are so independent, we love our vehicles so much. But I, I just... It just seems to me like we're smarter than this, and I don't know why we never figure this out. Yeah. And they could do you know, incentives. Okay, we're not going to force you, um, but, you know, hey, you buy a, a bus pass, you can write that off your taxes. And we're going to make it, and parking. You get $2 off of your taxes. No. <laughs> well, but, you know, you do something. Um, you know, parking, let's tax the parking spots. And that money goes to public transportation. You want to park your car, you can, but you're going to pay for it. I, you know, the, like I time. do have a problem with that. I, I well, hate to take the bus, but they're going to make it basically impossible for you to do anything but take the bus. Yeah, that, I don't like that either. And I do not like using our tax code to try to change people's behavior. 
I think we end up with too many lobbyists. Somebody's buddy is going to get the contract that we're forced into. And I, I so I, for me, keep your hands off the tax code when it comes to this. We have to be able to figure out better ways. First off, if we have to use the tax code to incentivize somebody to do this, it's probably because they don't like doing it because we haven't designed the system right. So rather than, you know, make us pay for that or try to change our behavior with tax code, um, let's just figure out how to do this right so it, there's enough of incentive for me to go do that. You know, I, I'm not going to go ride a bus with a bunch of homeless people sleeping on it. And, you know, it takes me an hour and a half to get there instead of an hour. And, I, yeah, um, we should probably move on and, and get back to this was kind of yeah, trucks because we started with the electric thing uh, because I was shocked by those statistics that I was optimistic that we would be able to make the transition to electric vehicles. And I've said many times for me, it's not about the environment. It's about the fact that I love electric vehicles. I love the potential that they could have. And, but I, I think I have to admit, after hearing some of those numbers, we are nowhere close. No. So I agree. ICEs are going to be around for a long time, and that's good for our show. So, um, Pete, did you have anything else? I think I kind of stole your time there. So I do. So I had sent you a couple pictures um, two weeks ago on the show. We had a customer send you an oil analysis. The, the copper was bad, lead was bad, tin was bad. Um, definitely some contaminants in it in a ISX. Got it. Yep. Did you get that text? So he, we told him we need to check the bearings. He wasn't able to get to the shop, so he was going to find himself to change the bearings, which I think is great. That Hey, I can't get in. I'm going to do it myself. And then I took a picture of what we found, or what he found, and the, the rod bearings looked good. The main bearings were in pretty bad shape. Yeah, I'm looking at that picture now, and I'm going to, uh, in a second, when I'm not talking, um, I'm going to post this up on truckingtribe.com. And you're right, the rod bearings look, uh, trying to blow it up here, they look like they're in really good shape. And the mains look really rough. Yes. And that's unusual because normally the rod bearings wear first. And you can see it's a lot of dirt ingestion. I mean, by the scratches. Uh, and he has signs of dirt in the oil. Look at his work. You know, is the clean side of the thing on the other side of the pilot. Yeah. Well, this is what he pulled it out. <laughs> that's true. Oh, yeah, he's on dirt there. But, um, <laughs> my, what I told him is he needs to, let's, let's find that dirt. We do have dirt in the oil analysis and we have where that shows there was dirt. Yes. So what'd you come up with? Well, I haven't heard back from him. Okay. So he sent me these pictures last week and I said, okay, let, let's pay really close attention to the area in Texas, the filter, um, the air piping, all that stuff. Let's make sure we're not getting dirt in any place because obviously we are. Yeah, it's quite a bit of dirt. That is a lot. Now, it's nice. We found, I, I, you know, we've had oil analysis that showed an issue, and Terrence, we can't find the problem. At least we found part of the problem. We we know now where his wear metal is coming from. You can see in the bearings. 
we yes. just got to figure out where that dirt's coming from to prevent this from happening again. Yeah, absolutely. And this really is a very good visual indicator. So, in fact, I think uh, I'm going to take a couple minutes and put the oil sample up um, in the in the same post. So you can see the pattern in the oil sample. The dirt got in, so you're looking for silicon. Uh, and at one point, the silicon was 39. Now, part of that, I think, was right after an in-frame, right? Um, okay, I, I've done a couple of these really dirty oil samples in the last couple of weeks, and I might be getting them confused. Uh, let me go back. Yeah, and so unit time is almost 800,000 miles. I, I would say no. Oh, no, you're right. So I am confusing them. So this one, this one just, the silicon shot up to 39 way back when, and, and that's also when we saw a copper spike. Uh, and then the copper and lead have just kind of been all over the place. Um, the last sample ended up being uh, lead at 136. And you can look at the main bearings and see where all that, that lead's gone. I mean, that, that's, it's just a great visual indicator. And then you can see the, the copper spiked up to 46. And when you look at the bearings, they're almost copper colored now. I, this is this example is such a good visual indicator of what you see in an oil sample and then what the bearings are going to look like. Yes. And, and fortunately for him, um, it, it didn't damage the crank in any way. He, he um, inspected it. I, I sent him some guidelines that come and add uh, what they consider acceptable. And fortunately for him, the, the crank was acceptable. So he didn't have to pull the engine uh, and, and polished. Good, good. All right. Uh, I, like I say, when I get a couple minutes here, I, I'm going to post that. What else you got, Pete? Well, Bruce was mentioning about the bus company. So many years ago, I worked for a bus company, a local company. Um, at one point, they were the sixth largest in Pennsylvania. I've been there. But uh, I'm still friends with one of the, one of the guys trying to the, the one um, the one shop and mainly they're getting away from the diesel because of the emissions issue. Now, as far as fuel prices go, it, it depends on the contract. Sometimes they will contract with the school where the school pays for the diesel. It doesn't matter if it goes up and down, they have nothing to gain or lose. Uh, and that's depending on the district they bid on. Um, sometimes they will, uh, they pre-bought the fuel, at a, a price, it seemed like a fair price, and of course the bottom dropped off and fuel all of a sudden is cheaper. So they kind of took a hit there. You know, a little bit of a roll of the dice. But when they can, they will have the school pay for the fuel. It doesn't matter what, what they pay for at that point. But the emissions is stop and go, especially around here. So, you know, it, it's, and, and the parents, God forbid, their, their 14 year old boy has to walk two houses away to pick up a bus. Yeah. So they want the, the kids a house and it's just stop and go stop and go um seldom like where i grew up that they were on a uh you know at, at operating speed at 50 or 55 for more than a minute just you know that's nothing you know but the worst thing for a uh, mission system you know to go through it and, and you got a driver so it's an automatic and it's put to the floor on the pedal and put on the brake 
not, not the best ideal driving habitat. I think the gasoline, you know, they don't care about fuel mileage. You're not going to get it doing that. Right. And when I worked there, we had gasoline engines. Now, they were old, but we're talking, we would do plug points and, and crap like that. But the engines held up. They don't put 500,000 miles bus. They dump it off way before that. The, the school district likes a lot of new buses. So they will dump them off because of age more so than mileage. Got it. So when it comes down to that choice, whether they're going to run gas or diesel, it's a way more complicated than just what we might look at here in, in this industry. Totally different operate. And the other thing we have to remember, and I hate to always think like this, but, you know, that this is all part of a government system. We know they do all kinds of stuff that just doesn't make sense. Yep, for sure. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, imagine that. All right, Pete, anything else? That is it. Nope, that's it. All right. So who's left here? Who haven't we heard from today? Well, you've heard from me, but... <laughs> We have. You're right. You, you, you've been jumping in and adding to the conversation. What's on your mind today? Well, today is the, the big, today, big day, today and tomorrow. We have our test truck here for the uh, mileage improver. Oh. So I have, yeah. So I have spent the last two weeks building the test, programming the test, writing the test procedure, uh, and then practicing the test, finding any holes in it, uh, trying to eliminate as many, as many variables as I can to try to make sure that whatever results we get, that, you know, they're unbiased and, you know, good results. So today is the day we've been practicing uh, the last couple of days, make sure our test is good. And some of the preliminary stuff we've done, uh, we can do like four or five back-to-back -back tests with only a, it's like less than a tenth of a mile per gallon. So any change bigger than like a tenth of a mile per gallon, I'll be able to see. Wow. That's, uh, I love the way um, you guys are doing this. We've talked about it for years. Really accurate fuel mileage testing is very, very difficult to do. So, you know, we've tried to control as many variables as we could. I've talked about how I used to test and, uh, with my trucks, if I could put all three trucks in the test, I would, so we could have a control. And uh, you have to do as much of that as you possibly can. And then the other thing I've done over the years, just out of necessity, um, we'll never absolutely prove that something works and nothing works all the time. So we do the best we can. And my criterion, being able to talk to so many people every day and having the data in our, our software, our fuel gauges software. We have almost 5 million fuel tickets in there now, you know, and a lot of detail on each truck and each trip. But we're still to the point where, you know, some of the stuff we talk about, we know there's a fuel mileage gain in there somewhere just because we've done enough numbers and enough trucks. But sometimes you can't really identify it and say that it's two-tenths or four-tenths or... You know, when, when you talk to anybody who tests fuel mileage stuff, you guys, what I've done, what Joel does, there's this number that we kind of come up with. And 
you hear it a lot, three-tenths. And I think what happens, why three-tenths seems to be such a common gain from things is because it's too hard for us to pick out one and two, and very few things are going to do five or more. So you get that, right. that repetitive number of, oh, yeah, fleet air filter improves three-tenths, and a flow below improves three-tenths, and the tune improves by this much, and that three-tenths number keeps coming up all the time. And after a while, you think, well, wait a minute, why is the answer always three-tenths? And I think it's because what I just said, we can't measure one and two, and very few things go over five, so almost everything that works is probably going to fall in that three or four-tenth range. Yeah, really, it does. So, so that's uh, that's exciting. So we'll uh, we should when will we uh, know some results then? So we have one press, we have one test truck today. Um, I'm if I keep my other test truck, I'm going to try to do that next week. Uh, so that'll be two trucks, and then Eric said he could get me a third one. So after I do three trucks and probably you know. 10, 12 tests a piece. That should give me a decent sample size to, you know, say yay or nay and see if we can get more tests. Got it. So I would say maybe in a year or two, I would say we should have some sort of result. But, uh, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a grind trying to get to this point and trying to really, like, red team my own argument. You know, I don't want it to be biased and be like, well, did you remember to do this? Did you do that? Right. I want to make sure that we have all right. Hopefully we have more than three tenths. All right. Good stuff. What else you got? Um, that's been my focus. So other than that, that's all I got. Perfect. All right. So I managed to sort of multitask there. I'm not sure how much sense I was making when I was talking, but I did get that uh, oil sample and the picture of the bearings posted up on truckingtribe.com. So that is a really good example. When you hear us talk about, we start to see lead, we look around, why would the lead be there? In this case, it was really obvious. There was a lot of silicon and it was up and down, but it was elevated for a long period of time. So there was a lot of dirt getting into this engine and that wasn't addressed. And this is the result. And it was a clear pattern. Well, actually, it wasn't really clear. Sometimes the numbers did jump around a little bit. Sometimes we see a more clear progression in all of those numbers. They all start to go up. Silicon goes up, then lead goes up, then copper goes up. These were kind of up and down. But anybody who's reviewed oil samples would look at this one and go, yeah, the problem was there. Uh, and we see the results of the problem. So just a really good example of what kind of things you can watch out for in oil samples and what we're talking about when we're talking about silicon and lead and copper and what's going on in the engine. So with that, if we're all done, the calls are starting to come in, so we're going to get to them. We're going to get started in Pennsylvania. Brian, welcome to the program. Hey guys. Um, well, I guess I'll give a quick election update. Um, it looks like eight more years of a democratic governor and I already can't stand Shapiro. So that's, <laughs> so <laughs> he's got a pretty big margin. Yeah, that, um, 
I do have to say when it comes to the governor race, I'm pretty darn excited. We have a very good shot. Um, I think it's a really close race now here in Oregon of having the first Republican governor since 1982. Um, So that's kind of exciting. It might just happen. Uh, It's a shame that uh, everybody, you're talking about Pennsylvania, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. The governor race there has kind of been ignored because I think the the, the spread there is just too big. Um, I'm shocked that the spread on the Senate race is still as close as it is. How, how can anybody, I mean, forget the guy's politics, which are Fetterman all over the, well, they're not all over the board. They're so far left. They're off the board. Um, the guy's never had a real job in his life. He destroyed the town of Braddock from what I can figure out. Um, and, and on top of that, he had a stroke, um, more than likely caused by the vaccine, but nobody wants to talk about that. So I feel bad that the guy had a stroke. I really do. And they're saying, oh, you can't pick on him just because he has a stroke. Well, yes, I can. It has absolutely everything to do with his job performance. Uh, he wouldn't qualify to drive a truck. Like, why do we think he's qualified to be in the Senate? He can't communicate with people. And yet, yet Oprah Winfrey comes out and endorses the guy and a bunch of other big people who are way more intelligent than that. You just have to believe they are just really even more corrupt than I thought. Yeah, well, that was the next thing I was going to mention. That race is a little strange because Oz is up a half point right now. But if you look historically, the polling has had Fetterman ahead 10 points, eight points, I know. six points in October. And it's like, well, what was that? Yeah. Yeah. I, but, and, uh, and the good news there is a half a point that that's well within the margin of error. So technically that is a, a dead tie, but Momentum counts. And I think that, you know, um, the other problem we have is polls are usually horribly wrong the last couple of years, but they do tend to favor Democrats most of the time when they're wrong. So between the polls possibly just being wrong and the momentum, those close races, I, I, I really think should fall on the Republican side all across the country. But you never know. Uh, it's going to be an interesting day. Did your one pro tire inflator show up yet? Me? Oh, was that yeah. one of the Kickstarter projects? Yeah. Are they shipping it? I don't know. Oh, you're asking me. No, I haven't heard any. I'd have to go back and check on the status of that one. I haven't gotten any emails or updates on that one in months. I have. I, I would... Oh venture to say at any given moment, I have between 10 and 15 um, Kickstarter and there's another, what's the other platform? There's another one just like Kickstarter. Can't think of it right now. But between the two at any given moment, I usually have between 10 and 15 things I've already paid for and many of them never show up. 
Oh, I got you. Yeah, there's no guarantee, even though you paid for those things, there's no guarantee you're ever going to get them. And I would venture to say about 30% of the stuff I've bought never materializes at all. Right. Um, You buy something and it doesn't come, they don't ship it? So I I actually love this, um, if you're willing to take a risk on things. So... Kickstarter and I just can't think of the other one. The way it works is, let's say, Bruce, let's say you came up with a really cool idea for a product to put on a truck like you've done many times. For the most part, you've been able to bring those things to market yourself. You know, they're, they're, this isn't an insult. They're fairly simple things. And that's actually good. You found simple ways to solve problems. But imagine, you know, trying to create the latest high tech coffee maker that, you know, makes every kind of coffee under the sun and it does it from your phone and it doesn't use the little pods that, you know, are bad for our environment. And, you know, we're talking possibly, you know, millions to develop that product. And what's happened is small companies get priced right out of the market and we only tend to get those kind of products from big companies that have been around forever and they're not very innovative. So I love, so what happens here is if a company has an idea and usually they have to get it at least to a prototype, sometimes not though, they will go post a project up on Kickstarter and they will say, we're trying to raise a million dollars and they have a time limit, 30 days or whatever it is. We're trying to raise a million dollars and we want to do it with individuals. We don't want to do it with investors. So what we'll do is if you'll take a chance on us Let's say that the we'll stick with the coffee maker. Let's say the coffee maker is going to be four hundred dollars. It's the greatest coffee maker ever made. So if you pledge to contribute to the project, maybe you'll get that coffee maker for two seventy five, and then once it comes to market, you know you'll never see that price again. So what happens is I'll say, okay, I really want that coffee maker if they ever build it. So I'll give them my 275. If they don't reach their goal of a million dollars, the whole project goes away and nobody gets charged anything. If they do reach the goal of a million dollars, enough people have committed, then the project starts, your credit card gets charged at that point and they give you updates. You know, they, they say, Sometimes it's only going to be a month or two and the project will be done. Sometimes it's two years out. And then sometimes, like I said, the whole thing just kind of falls apart at some point. So it's risky. It, it, you shouldn't be on there buying things if, if, you know, you really, really want it. And, you know, you're just willing to wait to see if it comes to market. But I, I'm a risk taker and I love cool new stuff. So, um, I, like I said, I usually have 10 or 15 things all at once that I'm waiting on. But I love the whole concept wow. and the platform. I'll have to think of something that you can invest in then. There you go. I'll be first up. We'll come up with, we'll come up with another gadget. There you go. I'll be first up. I'll help you get it onto Kickstarter. Okay. <laughs> all right. Brian. Have we even talked yes. about the topic you well, called got, about yet? 
I, I got one more for you before okay. we get to that. All right. <laughs> and then if we're slow, I got more notes. But, um, yeah, I, I just can't – this just dawned on me the other day. You know, I've always been interested in the idea of pulling fifth wheels with Class 8 tractors and, and you know, bus conversions and all that. Um, I I just thought of something else for my day cab that sat in the weeds for two years and I sold last year. So it's kind of irrelevant at this point, but, uh, um, what about putting truck campers on semi tractors and you could even use it. I was looking at my new truck. If I took the sleeper off and made it a day cab and replaced it with a truck camper, it's going to look a little hokey. And it's not going to be the most aerodynamic, and I'm not going to do it, but this is theoretical. Um, th- that that adds a lot more functionality, like the like the mega sleepers, without costing mega bucks, and it's you don't have to be a master fabricator to do it, really. I, um, okay, it's just I, kind of a wild idea it. to throw out there. I, I, <laughs> this is a pickup truck sliding camper. Correct. Maybe I, correct. Maybe you want to put behind the cab. Now this isn't. Yeah. Oh, you're hey. even talking about a truck that would pull freight. You, if it was, yeah, like I was looking at my my Kenworth with the studio, and it's, I think it's long enough that if you took the sleeper off, you could put one of those on and still haul freight. You're right. It's going to be for like a day cab. You could make it like a, you know, like a toter home. Yeah, you should probably start with the day cab if you're going to do it. But you are right about a couple of things. Um, One, it's just going to be butt ugly. And two, uh, (laughs) the aerodynamics are going to be pretty ugly, too. When you were talking about it and you had mentioned, you know, bus conversion. So I was thinking more of the RV side of things here. Um, I had a visual of how you could create uh, a pretty quick turn like that cab over into a, a, you know, a recreational vehicle, not to pull freight. The way I envisioned it right at that moment was just stretch out the frame, put a ramp system that comes out the back, straight out the back, and now just drive the whole pickup truck on there with the camper on it. <laughs> now you drive around and when there you get you someplace and you want to set up, you just roll the pickup truck off and you got your camper there too, but you're not putting all the miles on that camp. That might, but even that's pretty goofy. Uh, but that's what I was visualizing. So it, you, you have to know if you ever built a truck like this, we would all be laughing. Oh yeah. 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 It's just a wild idea. It's a very wild there. idea. Not something I'm real serious about. <laughs> it would, it would work. It would be cheap, but it wouldn't be that hard. You're right. You're right. It would be fairly cheap and easy. You wouldn't have to have a lot of fabricating skills, but man, I just don't think I could get over the ugly factor. <laughs> hey, I don't think it would have looked. <laughs> Go ahead, Pete. Hey, so um, at the Walcott Iowa 80 truck show, there is a guy, and I think Bruce, you should remember this. It was on a Mac, an old R model Mac. He had a camper on it. It looked pretty good. You remember that, Bruce? Yeah, he used a camper, not a sliding pickup truck right. camper. 
but it looked good. I mean, it looked like it belonged on her. He did a heck of a job building oh, that. I was right. on the rubber. So I had a picture of that, but it was a good camper. So are you saying he took like a travel trailer and pulled the axles off and put it up there? Right. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, We've yeah. had several clients do that. One was, one was up by Klamath Falls, Oregon, that did it, and he did a beautiful job. Yeah, now that that you could do away with the ugly factor. That's an interesting idea. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. several people have done with A models. I had one guy do with a, an old, uh, trying to think of what model, Mac. But there's a lot of pictures on the internet of people that have put campers on the back. So, frame rails and took the axles out of it. So see there, Brian, even really goofy ideas get us talking. Yeah, yeah. And another one that I've seen a lot of um, for like a heavy-duty kind of toy hauler is to take some sort of gooseneck, step deck, etc., and either put a slide-in truck camper or a regular travel trailer with the axles yanked off, you know, up front, and then you just have an open deck in the back. Got it. All right. Okay. Leroy, did you forget something you were supposed to talk about? About alternators. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you have any wisdom for us? So let me review what you had asked, or if you remember what was on that post, because I did look it up. Um, yeah. Yeah. I got the post up right now. I guess the main thing, there seems to be some debate about, brushless versus brush type you know traditionally we think brushless is better but i know joel is running a brush type alternator on his truck um i mean when when you say better better in what way well right that's the other thing um (laughs) they talk about efficiency i mean i guess in longevity they certainly are um but I don't know that that's as much of an issue anymore like Kevin talks about. I mean, they all last pretty long. Um, I would say fuel efficiency and battery longevity. I, I thought I heard somewhere that a brush type was easier on batteries. Does that does that make any sense? No, no, that does not really make much sense. So when it comes to efficiency, I mean, we're talking about something that draws less than 10 horsepower and then the other one draws maybe a few less than the other. You know, we're talking about a two or three horsepower difference. And when it comes to efficiency, you're better off just like rolling the window up than changing your alternator <laughs> for efficiency. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, I, I think you. I saw iCraft that was like, of all the energy spent in a truck, uh, accessories is 3%, and above the accessories, the alternator is like 0.8% of that. Hey, hey, Leroy. Right. So it's, yeah, I, I watched an episode of Mythbusters once and they said in a car, when you roll your windows down, you screw up the aerodynamics. So that costs you fuel. But when you roll them up, you run the air conditioner and it was about a, a dead heat. Well, we don't run the air conditioner. Oh, OK. So <laughs> we're just going to turn the truck into a sauna then. I got it. And then we'll help the guys lose weight. There you go. Oh, I like it. So. Oh, got it. But no, it's. Well, you know, when when you have a 60 or 70 degree day, a lot of times you can just open vents. Oh, yeah. You don't need AC on. Yeah, yeah. I agree there. 
you know, yeah, back, it was just back before we had air conditioning. I mean, my, my 69 Corvette didn't have air conditioning, but we had vents. My first truck had no air conditioning, no power steering, um, yeah. only two gauges, a speedometer and an air gauge. So, yeah, with, uh, we can survive oh, wow. without air conditioning. It's not very comfortable, though. Right. Yeah, so... Okay. As far as brush, brushless or brushed, as far as, uh, as far as efficiency goes, there's really no difference. I mean, you could probably say technically that there is, but it, the difference is just so small. It's not worth, you know, spending the bigger money. Yes, you, the brushless has fewer parts and plus ones, but they last just as long nowadays. So it's really about just getting the proper size one for your truck and making sure you, that your battery connections are good. You know, Ethan, you, you probably just answered one of the other questions we've brought up several times. I've talked about that project Cat tried to do she's almost 20 years ago where they took all the accessories off and tried to run them on battery. The new super trucks doing it again. But you know, if, if the gain from eliminating the accessory off the engine is so small that we're probably going to lose it in, in conversion and efficiency when we try to run it off the battery power, that's probably why these projects never seem to amount to much. And, and like, it's like I say all the time, it, can it be done? Yes. But is it worth it? No. Right. You know, when you remove all the accessories and then you have to add all these electric motors back into it and controllers for those. And I have to add a, a control system to turn the alternator on and off and charge this and charge that. Like, what, what are you, what are you saving in the long run? You know what I mean? It's just not worth it. Unless you have a solution that positively is game changing. It's not worth it. Right. Right. Yep, I agree. Got it. So I don't remember what else from that post, Brian, that you had written. But yeah, no, that I was just, it. I had pretty much. Yeah. Okay. All right. Then uh, I will stop typing and I'll pay attention. I was trying to answer questions on the website there. And uh, we'll cut you loose. Thanks for the call. And we'll move on to Nebraska. Grant, welcome to the program. Hello. Uh, thanks to you guys talking. I have some more comments if we have time to get to them. But I originally called in. I'm a couple weeks behind in the app. And people have been calling in about how to distribute the catalyst into their fuel tanks and I work for a local company moving construction equipment and shipping containers so most of the time I'm within 100 miles uh, and I'm at like 65% idle time so I won't run without the catalyst in a 2020 truck but I as I buy the catalyst from Cross and Sons in Seward I've uh, collected six of the 16-ounce squeezable little bottles with the one-ounce part. And Mm -hmm. so I just keep those. I I, I take the 30 minutes. I went to Sam's Club, and I bought the gallon of Dawn dishwashing detergent, and I sat at the sink for an hour and cleaned all the soap out of the pump so that I wasn't getting any bubbles from the Dawn in, in the catalyst. And I just put that in, fill all six of them, 
I keep two in the truck so that if I'm out somewhere and I need fuel, I always have some. And then I go through all six and when they're all empty, then I take the time and I go into the shop and I fill all six up again out of the gallon. The only thing you got to watch out for is that Dawn dishwashing detergent pump likes to leave the catalyst right at the end of the nozzle. So if you bump it too hard, it spits out at you. Uh, and don't pump too fast because you make fuel catalyst bubbles. But other than that, it works pretty good for me. Good. And so then we should uh, have our oh, ready here shortly. So we're, we have a new uh, device to put on the the one gallon jugs so that it simpler to pour into the smaller containers. Oh, uh, nice! I should have them here, yeah, real shortly. So they they worked well in the testing. We did for having problems with the seal. Um, they had to come up with a different ring which they have. So you know, keep nice. an eye on the website. We'll have them ready shortly. Excellent. I'll look for that. Yeah, the first time I was pumping away, like, all right, I'll get this done real fast. And then half the bottle was bubbles, and there was eight ounces. I'm like, all right, that was too fast. And then, Kevin, uh, because of your train trip, you you got onto a topic that is near and dear to my heart. My my main hobby is anything railroad-related. Oh, really? Uh, there's a hey. website for you to kill some time. Okay. Go ahead. Ozark Mountain Railcar. Let's Truck needs their own private train that you tack onto the end of Amtrak, and you can just go park it in any city Amtrak visits, and you can have your CMC as a mobile meeting. That would be fun. You know, for a lot of years, people asked us to do the CMC or to do an event on a cruise. There's two problems with doing it on a cruise. One, I hate cruises because I feel like I'm stuck on that damn boat and all you see is the ocean and, you know, the, the port time isn't enough. And there's just a lot of reasons I don't like cruises. So that's the first reason I wouldn't do that. I had a, a, a travel company that made me a hell of a deal. Like they were going to give me six full cabins, really nice, the, the top of the line um, for promoting it and organizing it. And I could do anything I wanted with the cabins. I could use them myself. I could give them away. I could sell them, whatever I wanted. It was a hell of a deal. And I just said, you know what? I don't like cruises. I don't want to waste a week doing something I really don't like doing. The other big problem is... You know, when you come to one of our events, the CMC for five days, you spend all that money, that's all tax deductible. If we do it on a cruise, it's not. The IRS has a very, yeah. very specific cutout on cruises and business travel. Their rule is all ports of call have to be in the United States and the, and, and the ship has to be United States flagged, which is almost unheard of. We found one cruise in the country that met that criteria and you had to fly to Honolulu to start the cruise. It was a seven day cruise that just went around the Hawaiian islands. So all the ports were in Hawaii and the ship actually was flagged in the U.S., that's the only one we could find. So the cruise idea wouldn't work, but man, having my own trail uh, train car would be pretty damn cool. Well, and you could have a few because you want to open your bed and breakfast. So if you convert, they're 85 foot passenger cars usually, convert one of those into six 
they'd be bigger than the Amtrak bedroom. So, I mean, you're not going to like do jumping jacks and everything in there, but it's just a place to sleep. Then you could do your bed and breakfast with your healthy eating and you could have a kitchen car. It could be uh, you, a lot of fun. You should stop now. I, uh, the last thing I need is another project. <laughs> Um, but you're right. That I'm going to live my dream through you. Yeah, that, that does sound very cool. I like that idea. So then, I, since you're, such, then, a, uh, since the, you're oh. such a train buff, I have a trivia question for you. Okay. What's the width of the tracks in the United States? Four foot, eight Dang. and one half inches. Why? Supposedly... If you believe the inter- if you believe the internet, it all goes back to the width of the wheels from the Roman chariots. Yep. I don't know if that's true or not. It, I think I it is, around. and here's here's why I think it is. I heard that 30 years ago before the internet was really even around and spreading all kinds of misinformation. So I actually think there is some truth to that. And it just kept, as we progressed into different types of travel, for some reason, we just stuck with that. And it, it you know, made a lot of sense in, in Europe where, you know, everything's so much more congested and the narrow train does make it uh, it's better. But when we started building trains over here, we should have just scrapped that. We had all kinds of space and room. We could have made much wider trains that would be way better than what we have today. Well, and there was railroads uh, that had wider gauge until, uh, I don't remember when, but eventually due to interchange between railroads, I would assume the big guy muscled out the little guy, like you're going to make your track match yep. ours. Yeah, so I'm sure. Change stuff. I'm sure that's how that happened. Uh, but but they had wider right-of-ways, so they got all uh, like the the big transformers from GE and Westinghouse. They liked to go along there because there was less clearance problems along the right-of-way. Ah, uh, good point. And then talking about your mass transit, uh, I'm not sure if you're aware, but at like 1910, there was a thousand miles of trolley lines in LA County. Really? But then World War One happened, so no expansion. And then the Great Depression, no expansion. And then World War II happened, and then everybody wanted to move to the suburbs and get their own car, and it just kind of killed it all. Yep. And, you know, we, we are clearly and we always have been a car culture. We love our cars, and that's part of the reason why getting public uh, transportation done properly hasn't worked, because a lot of us just resist it anyway. We just want to be in our car. I mean, Leroy spoke right up. Why the hell would I want to drive a train or a bus? I want a car. We all feel that way. Um, but And for me, that's part of the reason I don't live in a city. I don't want to have to deal with that kind yeah. of traffic and congestion every day. If I did live in a city, I would want to live in a city that had, and if I had a commute into the city every day, I would find a place that at least had a decent, you know, some sort of rail line into the city um, just because it becomes yeah. so much more productive time. I can't imagine when you and think about it, people who commute two hours every day, that's 10 hours a week. Stop commuting and work four days instead. You'd still get more work done. Yeah. 
Now, my wife, we were looking at houses. I'm like, I don't want to drive half an hour. No, that's too to far. And then half an hour, I'm like, I don't, I don't want to deal with that. I know. But where I live, I can get on Amtrak about 30 minutes away, depending on if it's on time. And unfortunately, Amtrak's never on time. <laughs> and it, I, could be, I could be at Winter Park, Colorado by 10 a.m., get on at 1, get off at 10 a.m. I could ski all day, stay the night, ski all day, get on, and I would only take, if, again, this is a big if, if it's on schedule, it would only take me two hours more of travel time than driving. And you can and sleep. I wouldn't have to drive. You can sleep during that travel time. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it would be better if we would have built out better. And, and honestly, um, as much as I use them, because I do like traveling on the train, Amtrak just sucks. You can see the oh, yeah. government influence in, in Amtrak. I will have to say... I've taken that Empire Builder from Portland to Chicago many times. This trip, the car was nicer than I've ever been in before. It was newer and, and better maintained. The food was about five times better. I was actually really impressed with the food this time. I, I don't know if it, who made the improvements or if it's system-wide on Amtrak, um, but I, I was pretty... Now, they having said all that... It's still the, the, the car, the condition, the food is still nowhere near where it should be for what I paid for that trip. Oh, no. Because, and if, if you follow, you probably haven't followed along, but a lot of times, and all the rail fans online, they get all riled up. They, they put somebody new in charge of Amtrak, and it's somebody that used to run an airline. So how can that not be a conflict of interest yeah. And crony capitalism. Oh, yeah. There's there's and way then, too much of that going on. All and right. COVID hit, it, and they didn't let... Oh, yeah, we'll let you go. Yeah, we. Yeah, I just looked. We're all over the board today, and I don't mind that. That's uh, We have time, so it's not like we're rushed. It's not like we're being interrupted by commercials. But I do want to get back because the calls are starting to pile up. We're going to go to Illinois. John, welcome to the program. Hey, Kevin. Thanks for taking my call. I uh, called in about a month ago and talked to you guys about a 12.7 Detroit I had that had a 702 turbo and just really slow spooling. And uh, I asked you all about putting a turbo blanket on it. And so now I've, I've had a month of running it, and uh, it, it's really improved it. I run the same route, been doing it for about a year and a half, so I know exactly what the hill is going to do. And uh, the biggest hole I got, which ain't, ain't that big, but I'd always have to drop a gear, uh, just not because the truck wouldn't pull it, but because the exhaust temperature would be, it hit a 1,000, you know, and probes on the cold side. And uh, so now with that blanket on, I can pull the hill and not shift down, and it will stay at 925. How many pounds of boost did you gain? You know, I, I didn't gain any boost. Did you get the boost quicker? When yeah, you out there, you're starting out and you ease into the throttle, you have it quicker. And then you don't lose as much between shifts, correct? Exactly. Even, even yeah. coasting down a hill... I'll, I'll carry a pound of boost. 
Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. So now, have you tried the header wrap? Now do one more and take and wrap the first three, four, five, or six feet of the exhaust pipe and see what happens. I've done three foot already. Okay. I've done the. They said that's important. That the the three feet is the important part. Exactly. And and before it just really wouldn't make any power until it got to right at fourteen hundred RPM. You really start feeling coming on. Well, it does that at twelve now. So it it dropped to two hundred RPM. You can feel it coming on. Absolutely. Like you did at fourteen. That's interesting. Yeah. Well. Well, now we can sell turbo boots for people with uh, 12.7 Detroits. Absolutely, and that's, I mean, that's the biggest problem on them 702 turbos, man. They're just they're just pretty slow spooling up, and, and if I'd have known this, I'd have done it years ago. Uh, probably the, the cheapest and the easiest thing I've ever done to make one, one run that much better. Do you have our program in the ECM? I do. Okay. It, I always thought they came on pretty strong. I, well, that, this, when I, the 702 don't seem to. Okay. I thought it did. Like that. Maybe I, maybe, uh, but then again, when I start out, even without a trailer, I'm just really gentle with it, so. Yeah, that, that could be it. But like the 701, I guess it, you know, it spools a lot quicker, but man, that yeah. and that's just the way it's kind of always been. Uh, it, it's China great. Turbo. That turbo's yeah. too small, so it was made for city buses. The seven hundred two. No, the one. Oh, I got you. But it it okay. does great. Now, I I wish I'd have done it a long time ago, man. It it makes it way more drivable. Me too. I think we could have, back in the heyday of the 12.7, we could have sold probably a thousand turbo boots that we passed up on. <laughs> right. And, uh, where were you 10, I, where were you 10 years ago? <laughs> well, I'm a little late to the party. Better late okay. than never. This is the first 702 I've ever ran. I always had, you know, like the, the was it the K31 or, you know, I've been, this is actually the first non wastegated turbo I've ever, I've ever ran on 127. Okay. So, you know, another All right, benefit well, that's great of news. Turbo boot okay. is, um, especially for guys that have a air cleaner under the hood. Um, you know, you have that exhaust housing radiating heat normally, and generally the air cleaner is right above it. So now you're heating that air going into the engine. Keeping the turbo boot on there and wrapping the downpipe, we're reducing a lot of the underhood temperature, which is going to help uh, keep the air going to the, into the engine from the air filter a little cooler. So it does a lot of things. It's as simple as the boot sounds, uh, there's multiple reasons why it's so efficient. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Do yeah, uh, you remember me telling you what, what it was invented for? No, I don't. It was the Bluebird Motorhome 
had 3208 cats in them. And the turbo on the exhaust system would make the bed so warm that people drive during the day, they couldn't sleep in the bed at night because the bed was too hot. So they made the first turbo boot, and then they insulated the exhaust manifolds and the exhaust pipe to keep the heat out of the mattress. And they found out that the coach ran better. <laughs> so it was by accident. It was by accident when I heard that because I was working, doing some work in the RV industry. I said, well, if it did that to a bus, let's try it in a truck. First one we put on was on a big can 400 and a 4300 International, and we had probably 550 horsepower, which Mike Perkins from Madison, Michigan. Mike called me. There was no cell phones. He called me a day later and told me everything. He was laughing, everything that it did. The, the um, you know back then we wanted to blow black smoke between ships, and he said that was greatly eliminated and it held the boost between ships. And I said, Mike, if anyone else told me this, I wouldn't believe him. But Mike is mechanically inclined. He's ex snowmobile racer and good friend and client and. And so that was the start. Well, it, it definitely worked. I, I've uh, what I use for your catalyst is uh, when I first bought it. It was it was kind of messy and kind of made a mess of things. You know, you kind of keep it under your in your under your bunk or whatever. But the smell was getting bad, so I had some uh, stable bottles. You know, with the the little mixer mm-hmm. little mixed into the bottle and. Uh, I started using them. I, I had a couple of them, and, and uh, once they were empty, I started pouring catalyst in it. And you can mix your ounce at a time real easy in them. Yeah. You know, I keep it in in my pickup trucks. I keep it in my cars. I keep it in the back of the Harley Davidson. I have it in a boat. I don't find it to be messy. I don't have a problem. I have those blue paper towels, and if any run down off the lip of the bottle. I just wipe it off with the towel and I'm always at a fuel island. I, I wet the towel and, and wipe off the bottle, but uh, I don't, I'm not having a mess problem. Well, that it, I'd get it on my gloves or something, I guess maybe, you know, if I happen to spill any at all, and it's, it's pretty stout smelling. Everybody, everybody tells me, uh, you know, like I got some in the back of my pickup. I always use, you know, the it's O five Duramax. And mm-hmm. anytime I'm I'm putting it in and somebody's around, everybody claims it smells like old gasoline, which it kind of does. Hmm. It smells like old turpentine. <laughs> what it smells like. All right. I'm still. Hey, Kevin. I'm still yeah. using the garlic bottles. By the way. Uh, the garlic bottles. What's that? Minced garlic bottles. Remember one time you said it's the smell from the garlic that's making the difference. Oh, yeah. That's right. Interesting. All right. That calls are piling up on us again. We better get back to it here. Get moving. We're going to go to New Mexico. Mike, welcome to the program. Hey guys, um, I've got a uh, Freightliner Cascadia 2019. 
It is um, through Penske, just so you know. I'm a company driver. We have an issue with our bunk heating and cooling temperature. Um, we've written it up, oh, I don't even know how many times, 30, 40 times. They can't seem to figure it out. Uh, I don't even know if they're working on it, honestly. Uh, but any any thoughts, Any anybody coming across that, like over and over? Well, what's going on with it specifically? Okay, so if you get in the bunk and say you put it on heat, on the heat, you cannot change that from full blast heat to anything else, period. And it's going to cook you out of there eventually. Um, or you can have it all the way cold when you start out, and it will stay cold and you cannot turn it any warmer. And that's only in the bunk. The only thing we've been able to figure out we can do is we can take the fuse and pull it out of, up there in the, in the dash. And if we leave it out and then for maybe 60 seconds or so, stick it back in, whatever you have turned the temperature to in the bunk is what it will reset to. Is this on one truck or a few trucks or is this on all of them? Um, I do know that uh, in, I do know other guys are having problems with it also. Uh, and I've asked them and they said they've even taken it in there to them. And they are like still not really fixing this, fixing it. So yeah, it's more than one truck. Does it make a difference if you cycle the key? Uh, or do you no. have to switch next to your seat? to pull all the cab power and turn it back on? Uh, that doesn't matter at all. Uh, what we used to be able to do, we saw this on the internet, that we used to be able to turn the dial, the fan motor all the way to the left and then the temperature all the way to the opposite, hold the buttons. I can't remember for how long it was. And then once they flash, they flash for like, 30 seconds, and then when they go off, it would reset that flapper door. Well, the mechanic said that he rewired everything, which I don't even know if that's true, but we cannot get that to work anymore like that, to reset the flapper, and now, like I said, it's just all the way hot or it's all the way cold, and the guy in the front driving, it's a sleeper, all He's he's okay up there, so he doesn't know that you're turning into a basted turkey back there. Yeah, it sounds like there's something going on with the blend door back there. I, I haven't okay. heard of this issue. And I don't have any ideas off the top of my head. Uh, I'd have to see it in person, but yeah, it sounds like either the blend door is getting stuck one way or the other. There's no okay. like, in-between, which might be either its controller, the, the switch itself, um, the the motor is there something like stuck in there? It's it's kind of hard to say. So okay, all right. Yeah, like I said, when we collapse you out, it, you know it does. At least it changes the temperature just a little inconvenient when you're in the middle of sleeping. <laughs> yeah, I had a uh, I had an Explorer exact same thing, and I can't remember what it was. I think I just replaced the the blend door actuator, but I can't remember. But that's totally different okay. anyways. So. I'll suggest that uh, to them because they, they uh, keep saying they, they 
you can't find a problem. I'm like, wow. I, I mean, it's so well, simple to find the, you know, see the problem, you know? Yeah, they can't find the problem, but you could probably jump up in there and get it to do it every time, right? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> well, that doesn't seem right, so. Right. Yeah, if you ever okay. make it out this way, let's get it. All right, cool. Thanks. Yeah, no problem. All right, thanks for the call. We're going to head off to Kansas this time. Bob, welcome to the program. Hey, guys, how's it going? I just wanted to tell Pittsburgh Power that they, I, you, you guys had my ECM and you worked on it, and this has been a problem that I've had for three years, and I've gone through three set, or two sets of injectors on this motor because everybody kept telling me, it's the injectors, it's something mechanical, and I finally sent my ECM off to you guys, and I don't know what it was or what you guys did to it, but it did finally fix this backfiring problem on my 14-liter Detroit. It's uh, yeah. finally. And the engine builder told me so many times he's never heard of this problem, he's never seen anything like this, and everybody pretty much told me because the problem would go away. It was totally intermittent and nobody, and you had to be in certain situations and it, thank God it is finally gone. I just really appreciate it. Yeah. It's the, and we uh, did that. You, you shipped us the ECM. Yes, sir. Yeah, we did. Good. Yeah. Hey, Roy, uh, you remember that one? So that's what it always is. You just change. I think most of them are set to negative 10. The guy that had the stacks blown off, his was negative 10. If it goes into that filter torque mode, it reduces the timing all the way to negative 10. And depending on how hard you roll into it, you can inject, you know, 25 degrees pulse width, which is a considerable amount of fuel, and with negative 10, yeah, it uh, backfires and stumbles. I guess can occasionally blow the stacks off. So it is Why has nobody ever... Why is it that nobody's ever heard of this or never had this problem? That I don't know. I feel like it's easy just to blame you know, injectors or it's out of time or there's black magic in the ECM or, you know, it's, it's raining so we should replace the wiring harness. It's, it's hard to say. Um, but it really just takes, I mean, it's, once we found it, it was pretty easy to find because we just pulled, we just watched the timing live. And if you know a little bit about a diesel engine, you can see that it goes to negative 10 when the guy rolls back into it. The, the hardest part was to have a guy bring a truck here and get it to do it. Once I had a truck here and the guy showed me in person what it did and I saw what the data was showing me, it was pretty easy to figure out what it was. So I'm not sure why no one ever can, you know, or nobody has in all this time figured it out. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. I can't tell you. I mean, this has just been something that has been, it just, it sounds so awful when it does it and it just smokes and carried on. And I just, I, I drove it a few weeks here just because I couldn't hardly believe that it was totally gone, you know, because I've replaced the injectors. I've replaced both harness, engine harness as much as I could on this motor trying to find it and, Nothing would ever fix it, and I, I just, I'm so appreciative. 
Yeah. Excellent. No. All right. Thanks for the call and the feedback. Let's head off to Ohio. Herschel, welcome to the program. Hey, guys. Got a question for probably Leroy. Oh, boy. Uh, Leroy, I had sent you a couple of emails back and forth. We've been playing bingo for a week or so. But anyway, this truck is an 18 BNL Volvo D13. I shift 12 speed. I know 11th gear is direct. 12th gear, however, I do not know if it's 0.73 or 0.85. I don't know that. I do know the rear ratio is 264 because it's the XC package. This thing is doing really well as far as economy goes. Right now, my 30-day is 7.99, so can't complain about that. You, you had told me that you could tune a D13, and I'm curious, what, do you know any real-world results for efficiency purposes? I'm not really looking for... 250 extra horse. I'm in a little bit, but being okay, but efficiency is where we're at. Right now, I drive 55 miles an hour all the time. That keeps me in 11th gear at 1,200 RPM, and I'm getting 7.99. Yeah, I would like to know some uh, real world. I've done a handful of them. I've got a little bit of feedback, not a whole lot. Some good, some not so good, but one that's good. I haven't got that one working out. That was the only one that did it. Some people say, like Patrick Anderson, he's one of our remote tuners. He has a Volvo. Uh, a couple months ago, I did his. I can't remember. I think I think it went up, but like Kevin says, I think it was the infamous three tenths or something like that. Uh, but if Patrick, if you're out there listening, call in and let us know how it's doing. Uh, but yeah, other than that, I don't really know what the real world results are. People. Don't always give me good feedback. So. Okay, well, just in case that Patrick is listening, 740 253 1012. Give me a call. Um, okay, Leroy, well, um, send me some information you had mentioned about we'd have to do some things. I know you have the email there, lost again, 53 at Yahoo. Just send me some information, we'll talk about it. Yeah, I've been meaning to get back to you. Like I said, I've just been cramming on this mileage improver test. That's kind of just been my priority. So after this stuff, ah. we can do it then. So. Okay. We're not, not in a major hurry. Just thought I'd ask. Yeah. No problem. All right. All right, bud. Good talking to you, Herschel. We'll, uh, we're going to head off to Washington. Jerry, welcome to the program. Hey, so I got two things for you. One is I sent you an oil sample on the new truck. Um, I had NC machinery up here do it because it didn't have the OPS on it. So when we drain the oil and all that in there and put the new oil in, I uh, it took me a while to get the OPS on because me being me, I actually got some pictures I want to send to Bruce because all of my lines, I did steel braided lines on it. So my, from my oil pressure or for the oil pressure side of the motor to the OPS is all steel braided from the down to the oil pan is all steel braided. And then my vent line is all steel braided as well. So it looks really nice. nice. So that's why yeah. it took me a while. But I did, 
I did do an oil sample on it, so I just sent that to you right when I called so, in about 10 minutes ago. Yeah, so let's go over that. I've got it in front of me before we go on to your other okay. topic because I've kind of got this in my mind right now. So first off, part of the problem, um, Pete, I don't know if you'll be able to help me with this or not. It's a cat oil sample. Um, it takes me a little longer to look at them because they insist on using the the uh, periodic table symbol instead of just telling us it's lead. I got to go look at because I, you know, I think I may have taken chemistry in high school, but I probably didn't show up much. So um, I have to keep looking down at the bottom. So we do have wear metals here. Uh, is is this a Brand new truck? Brand new. My okay. brand new three. Yeah, so we Whatever can kind of... shows that are on there, I've got it. And, and what engine is this? It's the X15. Okay, so I'm, are you using Catalyst? Yes. Okay, so that would explain the iron. But we do actually have some copper and some lead... I'm a little, if, if I were looking at a, a, you know, a Polaris oil sample, I'd feel more comfortable with my answers. But I, a little concerning, even though it's early, maybe it's just break-in wear metals. Here's the one that bothers me. Pete, do you know of any other scale they use to measure silicon? You know, I, I look at so many Polaris samples. I know how they do it. I know if we go over 10, we're going to have problems. But there are, in different labs, they use different scales. It's kind of like trying to measure, you know, metric against um, imperial. So I, I'm not aware of any. I'd have to go look this up. Do you know if there's a different scale to measure silicon? I do not, and I dread when I get a cat oil analysis myself. I know I hate these things, and every time I go to the Internet and try to figure it out, sometimes I get more confused. Here's my concern. On silicon, I believe that Polaris uses parts per million like it does for all the wear metals. I don't know. The rest of the wear metals, I'm assuming, are in parts per million because they all look normal. Silicon is 38 they didn't flag it. So I, I'm, I'm thinking either they just allow an awful lot of dirt in there before they flag it, or it's just a different scale. I was trying to find I, a cat oil analysis, but I don't see one here. You know, I've had a couple over the years and just so tough to read. Do you, I mean, I have the email up. Do you want me to forward it to Pete real fast? Yeah, it might help if they have some more information in there. Okay. It, it might help. What's your email, Pete? Would that be 3.8? No, it, no, it's That's clearly 30, 38. Okay, go ahead, Pete. It's Pete at PittsburghPower.com. P at Pittsburgh Power or Pete? Pete, P-E-T-E. Pete performance diesel engine at 1977. Pittsburghpower.com. All right, it's on its way to you. Okay. Oh. My email. So, I thought I had one in here. The other thing, if you want, I can talk about the other thing real quick if you want while Pete waits on the oil sample. Sure, go ahead. 
Okay. So on my big cam 350 um, that we had rebuilt about a year ago, a couple of months ago, I started getting oil out of the blow by excessive oil. So I took it back to the place where we had the in frame done. And he's like, well, maybe there's something on the valve cover. It's like a, almost like a ballast or something is what he's talking about. Kind of like what you have in a tanker to keep the liquid from moving forward and backwards. And he was like, well, maybe that's bad on your valve cover. So we'll check that out. And then, so he just had it back in there two weeks ago. He replaced it and said, yeah, that was bad. Bent the tabs over to keep the oil better. And I'm like, okay, great. And we get the truck back and now it's worse than before he even messed with it. So I have a ton of oil coming out of my blow-by right now. So, Pete, before or anybody, before we answer that question, I, I wasn't listening to it, Pete, so I won't have any input. I was looking this up, and I found something pretty interesting. Uh, on a cat oil sample, they are clearly using parts per million on silicon and all of their wear metals, which is the same as Polaris. And I can't believe that they don't flag this at 38. 38 is horrendous. No wonder why you're getting wear metals. Now... We do have to remember it's a new engine, but on the brand new engines, I don't tend to see really elevated silicon in the beginning. Not like we used to. Um, uh, the, I, did you change this oil? Yeah, I took the oil out and put new oil in. Okay. Um, if I were you, I would do a Polaris sample next. And I would... Oh, so should... I would probably do it at 15,000 miles. Okay. I'm at eight right now. So, and I'm not running real. We slowed down quite a bit. Um, so I'm actually spending a little bit more time in the office working and letting the other guys run to keep everybody busy. So I'm not putting that many miles on it. Um, right. As of right now, anyway. Yeah. So it yeah. may take me another couple of months just to put another seven or eight thousand miles on this thing and that's fine um you know just make a note somewhere so you don't forget about it but i i I, because it's dirt and dirt can be so destructive we want to catch it early i would check at fifteen thousand. um hey this is a this is something interesting i found when i was looking this up they do give a good explanation of, you know, when people will call and they'll be like, oh, my God, my, my you know, lead went from two to four. It doubled. And I'll be saying, well, yeah, it might have doubled, but just relax. Remember, this is all in parts per million. So they give a good example of it. it here's their explanation. It says parts per million or PPM is used to express concentration of elements in oil or coolant. One particle of iron in 999,999 particles of oil. Then they give some examples that would be like one second of time in 11 and a half days or one drop of ink in 40 gallons of water. I mean, that's, that's how we have to think about these wear metals. So we do watch them and we know the numbers, but I've had people freak out when it goes up just a little bit and we have to remember. But if that's the case, I, I'm really shocked that they're not flagging this at 38. Yeah, potassium okay. is high too, Kevin. What's that, Pete? 
Potassium's high as well. Yeah, it is, but I don't... What was sodium? I was looking for that, and then I got sidetracked. Seven. Uh, Yeah, see, that... I would venture to say that's the uh, potassium, some sort of an outside contaminant then. You know, on, on a Polaris sample, the the potassium and the sodium will go up almost in lockstep and they'll both be high. And if one's high and the other one isn't, it, it almost never turns out to be a coolant leak. Winter time, and I know we really haven't faced much winter yet this year, but we see these go up because almost all the stuff we put on the road is either sodium-based or potassium-based. I think what I would do is a precaution because it doesn't take much time. Check out the air intake system. Couldn't Let's hurt. Make sure there isn't um, okay. an issue with the clamp. So I remember when, I don't know, we did, were doing a lot of Dodge pickups many years ago. And just like now, one of the first things we would do is check for a boost leak. And there was a whole batch of them that came in with leaks. And what it was on the driver's side, um, the air-to-air it came out of the air to air at the bottom and then came up to the intake at the very bottom. It was like the hose was rolled and you had a leak there. Like a bunch of them did. Like they left the factory that way. These were new trucks. This wasn't a truck with, you know, 50,000 miles, but you know, anything like that's possible. Maybe the, um, you are actually getting dirt in there from a loose clamp or a hole somewhere. So for what it takes, okay. I would look into that and pull the air filter. Okay. Make sure it's proper. Okay, I'll do. I'll make sure I do that. No sweat, and then I'll just resample at 15 and do that with the Polaris. Because now that I'm running the OPS on it, I will. Uh, I can just run it through the Polaris. Yeah, yeah. It just it's so much easier for me to read those, and I I won't miss. You know, and I'm jumping back and forth from that scale and back up to the numbers, and sometimes I tend to miss something that might be borderline, and um, I'm just so much more comfortable with the Polaris samples. And honestly, I you know. It's not that we're biased towards Polaris. We use Polaris because of all the homework I did a long time ago. Their equipment, their training, their staff, everybody just seems to be better. We just get more accurate results. We get more help from them when we do have an issue. So um, I, I, you know, I haven't seen the newer engines show a lot of silicon early like they used to. So I'm a little concerned that this is just real. We're getting some dirt in somewhere. Okay. No, I'll check out the intake and do that. I may sample this thing at 10,000 just to be safe, though. But the other thing, weird thing was, too, I put back in, which I've never done before, because it came with a specific kind of oil. I put back the same exact oil that it came with, too, which that oil is hard to find. It's not just sitting on a shelf anywhere. you got to hunt it down. Oh, that's the other so, thing. And that's this- the first time i ever done that. Yeah, I had a note here. That is a 30-weight oil, right? Yeah, it's uh, the Valvoline Premium Blue blend, and that's exactly what I put back in it. Okay, all right. Because the viscosity was really low, I wanted to check that. It's correct for a premium 30-weight oil, but I just wanted to make sure it was 30-weight. Yeah, so... 
Okay, I'll do that. Any advice on the blow-by? The truck hasn't broken yet, so I wouldn't be terribly concerned on the blow-by yet. Don't have many miles okay. of attention. Okay. I will wait a little bit. Just, I think we went through a gallon of oil in about 30 days, so for us, rough guess, that's about... Oh, that's probably about 7,000 miles. So that was kind of my thinking process was, holy cow, we already went through a gallon of oil. And so that was just kind of what was making me a little bit nervous on the blow-by. So. At this point, I wouldn't be concerned. Okay. Just keep an eye. Sounds good. Okay. If it gets worse, I will let you guys know. All right. Thank you guys for your help. All right, you're welcome. Let's uh, let's keep moving along on the calls here. We're gonna head off to Illinois. Jerry, welcome to the program. Hi, Kevin. Two Jerry's in a row. Damn, we're overtaking the world, aren't we? And there you go. It's the Jerry Hour now. How about that? Yep, Jerry's against the world. So, I just real quick on a side note is that I've got uh, two and a half million miles on my truck. I've been sampling from day one. My oil blender had a relationship with ALS Laboratories, which is a very well-run laboratory group. And then when I put my OPS on, I started with the uh, Horizon, uh, the Polaris uh, Lab, and their samples were absolutely almost identical. I ran companion samples for quite a while, and during the pandemic, ALS Laboratory Group had a whole big problem getting their sample bottles, so I actually dropped them. But during that period of time, not living very far from the uh, Caterpillar World Headquarters and their lab, my oil blender actually started developing a relationship with Caterpillar, and he was trying to get me to go to the Caterpillar lab also. And I told him I absolutely wouldn't. He showed me a couple of those samples, and I told him they absolutely sucked. I wouldn't give him the time of day on those samples. I actually gave him some copies of Polaris and ALS so that he could take them to the Caterpillar lab and say, look, dingbats, you need to upgrade your report format. It sucks. It does. But obviously they never have. So No, you, you are absolutely correct, and they haven't changed it in like the couple of decades I've been reading them. And I just, I just kind of cringe when I get them because especially on the air, you know, if I have time off the air, I can sit down. It's not that bad. I I can manage it. But when I'm trying to do it on the air, I'm afraid I'm going to miss something that way I would have easily picked up on a Polaris sample. Right. And you shouldn't have to. That's the sad part. It's such a simple change to to reformat that, but, some of these big companies just won't listen to little peons. Well, so. well in, in you know, all fairness, I've complained about Polaris as much as I love their samples. Well, They're better than anybody else on the market. They could improve their form, and they just won't do it. I've asked them, like, please. Yeah, exactly. I know. So, but luckily yeah, there's Yeah, ALS our, Laboratory Group. Yeah, luckily yeah, ALS had a enough. really, really good report format. So. Good. All right, that was just a side note. Uh, okay, Leroy, I got a question for you. Can you fix anything electronic? Are you talented enough to fix anything electronic? No. Okay. <laughs> Would you try? I will try. All right, not here's anything. my Here's my problem, and I want to know whether I want to send it to you or not. I'll, I'll pay you whatever you want to fix this damn thing. Is I, my Kenworth truck has an outside air temperature 
built right into the driver's side mirror up there in the upper left-hand corner. That's got a little window, little uh, space in the upper left-hand corner of the of the mirror, and on the back side of the mirror is about a probably a two by four plastic circuit board that's screwed to the mirror. It's no longer available. You can't even buy the entire mirror. Last time I got one, when it went out, last time I got one, I had to buy the entire mirror sensor at all, and that's not even available at all through Kenworth at all. There's none of them in the entire United States. If I sent you that little circuit board, is there any chance you could fix that for me? So, there's a reading for it. Is it... Is just the board in the mirror you're going to send, or how am I going to verify that it's working or not working, or what other electronic? Well, I don't know. Well, it just there's two little screws on the back of the mirror, and that little circuit board just comes off, and it's self-contained. The only thing you're actually seeing through the mirror is just a little window in the mirror that you can see that LED reading, but it's quit working again. Hmm. Just a self-contained circuit board. Yeah, I have to do some research. Reach out to me after the show, and all right, we'll see what it looks like it's well, it's, or not. You know, you sat there for two and a half million miles and seen that outside air temperature, and it just pisses me off that I can't see it anymore, and and I can't even get it. I've even reached out to the company that made the sensor or the the circuit board, and that and they sold it to another company, and that company says they didn't buy it, and they don't know where to get it at. It's just a aggravating situation i want to get it fixed and i'm willing to pay a premium to get it fixed because it pisses me off not having it there yeah we can look at it either that or i'll give you a a thermometer with some packing tape well i thought of that too and i know there's outside there's uh gauges available etc but i just don't want to have to go to the trouble of mounting it and powering it and everything when i'm just so used to looking out in my mirror and seeing that so i mean i've got two or three bad ones around i could you know i could send you one without any problem, I could send you one and have you look at it, but I didn't know whether you'd even consider it or not. Yeah, let's uh, let's talk about it afterwards, and we'll see if it's good for you right. or not. Well, enough of that on the show, and thank you very much, Leroy. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Well, Take care. We'll talk to you again soon. Looks like we are going to wrap this up for today. Hey, Bruce, I do have one more thing for you before we go, though. What's that? So I've been working on this sleep thing. Um, I told you it was finally the adaptogens and one other supplement yeah. that kind of made the difference for me. And it was a it was a good test that week I was gone. I, my sleep went it, down the drain that week. I couldn't sleep on the train for some reason. When I got there, the event, they had us booked. You know, we were doing dinners late at night, so I wasn't getting to bed till late. And my, I wasn't working on my protocols. So my sleep just kind of fell apart. But within two days of being home, my no, I just had my highest sleep score in over a year uh, the night before last. Last night, I wasn't wearing my watch, um, so I didn't get a reading last night. But um, I'm digging into these adaptogens because they're very individual. You know, it's not like because this particular group of adaptogens worked for me doesn't mean it will work for you. So I, I'm I'm ready to start experimenting on people because I'm going to have to do some trial and error here and learn. So I've got some ideas for you. What what do you do for, are you, do you drink coffee every morning? 
No, I don't drink coffee. I have a cup of green tea. Okay. So that's even easier then. Um, I have a coffee replacement that has the adaptogens right in it. So, and it's a decaf. So that's what I've switched to in the morning. But I also have a couple other things. Um, what would you think about a really nice, rich cup of hot cocoa in the morning? Oh, that'd be awesome. I've, I'm going to... Does it have to be made with milk? Can it be milk-free? Um, it is milk-free. Yeah. Now, to, okay, to, to make it better, I mean, to make it really taste good, I make it with water and then I add a little heavy cream. But you don't have to do that. It's designed to just be made with water, like an instant coffee kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. You can put a little bit of sweetener in it. I usually put a little bit of heavy cream and a little bit of honey. And I actually made some hot honey. I fermented hot peppers into my honey. And that spice in the chocolate, I, eat it, I drink it at night because I do the decaf coffee in the morning. But uh, I have some ideas on two two supplements to add. Now, the thing about these, they don't work like everything else you've ever tried where you have to take it like one hour before bed and they make you drowsy. That That's not what we're attempting to do. Almost everything that does that won't really solve the problem and sometimes even makes the problem worse. So, I mean, they work for a while, but you and I have talked about this. Then they're not as effective. And then we go to something else. And so this you can, it would be two drinks a day. One is in a form that's just called an elixir and you just mix it hot water and drink it. And it's got, you know, like a, just a mild taste to it. The hot cocoa uh, with reishi in it, the reishi mushrooms, is really good. I really like the taste of it. And then it's uh, a very special blend of magnesium. I've experimented. Magnesium can really help with sleep issues, and most people are deficient. Mm -hmm. But we've tried all kinds. There's so many different forms of magnesium. Some are good for constipation. Some are good for relaxing. Some are good for your heart. But I found this particular blend, we actually are bringing it into the store now, Um, even though we have three other magnesium supplements in the store. I have a feeling these two, and you give it about a week, about a week to 10 days. And then what you should start noticing is that you really start to get drowsier and much more relaxed in the evenings, and then your sleep should start improving. Hmm. So I'll, I'll put some okay. stuff together and I'll, I'll send it off to you and then we'll get on the phone and we'll talk about, you know, the, the good news is you could take either one of them almost any time of the day. So you just, and the magnesium is a drink. It's a, a, a powder and you mix it in water. Um, and then I drink that cold with ice, but you, there's, there's really no specific time you have to take either one of these. I just, just, fit them into your day every day, give it about a week or 10 days. And I think you're going to see an improvement. Please get it to me, but call me before you ship it. So I can tell you where I am. Got it. We'll do. Uh, and we'll have it shipped. Uh, I'll have it shipped out from the warehouse. So I'll uh, make sure we know where to send it to. All right. Anybody have anything they want awesome. to finish with? Awesome. Nope. Nope. All right. 
I think we're good then. Thanks to uh, the team from Pittsburgh Power. As always, great stuff today. And we'll do it again next week. Um, Tomorrow on Destination Health, I am excited. We have a returning guest. In fact, it's been a while since we've had him on, but uh, we have him booked for multiple times coming up. Tomorrow, uh, Dr. Jack Wolfson, the paleocardiologist. So he'll be on the show tomorrow. We'll be talking and catching up, and we'll also be taking your calls and questions. So we'll really be looking for... uh, yeah, obviously, Dr. Wilson can talk about anything in the human body and diet and all those things. But if you have specific heart health questions, cardiovascular, high blood pressure, statins, cholesterol, uh, heart disease, all of those things, this is the chance to call and talk in, talk to somebody who really knows this stuff inside and out. Um Bruce, I don't know if I've told you this story or not. Um, Dr. Wilson, his father was a very well-known, renowned cardiologist. He grew up in it, uh, became a very well-known cardiologist himself, ended up meeting a chiropractor at a conference, uh, married her, and she started to introduce him to the natural way of things. And he has made a complete conversion. He actually said on the air, and I'll tell you, this takes a lot of guts to admit this. He said, I spent the first part of my career killing people slowly. And he said, I want to spend the rest of my life trying to make up for it. That's right. Yeah. Exactly right. Yep. So I'm excited to get to give you a regular doctor will give you a pill to combat the negative side effects of another one, and then it multiplies, and you'll see people on 17 different medications. Yeah. Oh, um, speaking of which, every time somebody says something, I have something else to say. Uh, Amazon, they've been making this push for a long time, but I, I see now they're really, Amazon wants to become everybody's pharmacy, and they're making it really, really convenient. Like they even bought a company that makes a dispenser for pills. So every time you get your prescription, you open up the prescription bottle, you type into the machine what it is and when you take it, or it can even scan um, if the if the prescription comes from Amazon itself, you don't have to do anything. I think you scan a barcode, you pour in the, the pills into the machine, and then when you get up and it's Tuesday morning, you hit the button and the machine dispenses all 17 of whatever you're supposed to have that day in the morning. It, it, if you have to take a lot of medication, it really is a very cool machine but it's a shame that people have to take all these prescriptions. You shouldn't have to take any. Um, But Amazon is about to take over the pharmacy world. Wow, that's a shame. Yep. Years ago, I was at a seminar, and they said there's a natural cure for just about everything. That is very, very true. Just about. There are some true genetic conditions out there that are, you know, mm-hmm. or once somebody gets some of these diseases, it, it can be much more difficult to try to counteract them. But right. there, it, it, our body is, was never designed to be sick. 
It's just not. We, we shouldn't have these diseases. We shouldn't need some sort of a drug to be comfortable or to live. So there is a natural cure or prevention for all of this stuff. And once you start down that road of the, the drugs and the pharmaceuticals, it's like a, at that point, I believe our whole system is designed to do one thing. It's designed to keep you alive, but sick enough that you're dependent on them forever. Correct. So watch out for uh, Amazon's not going to make that any better. If you make it more easy and more convenient to pay for people to take more prescriptions, they will. So that uh, that's what we have to look forward to uh, on the health side. All right. We're going to wrap this up. We will be back tomorrow and the team from Pittsburgh Power will be back next week. Don't forget the Lona Life Sale, killer stuff. That The bone broth is awesome to drink every afternoon, especially while you're driving. Nice, hot, rich, satisfying. But I use more bone broth to cook than anything else. If, uh, if you're making white rice for the resistant starch, make it with the chicken broth instead of water. It's the best rice you've ever eaten. When I make soup, I can make a soup in... 45 minutes that you'd swear has been cooking all day long because the base of the soup is always the bone broth. When I can meat, it always... So cooking, don't forget about cooking with it. 20% off. Make sure you hit up the store today and get it. We'll see you next... Well, we'll see you tomorrow. Be safe, be profitable, be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey.